Elon Musk called on voters to cast their ballots for Team Red in today's midterm elections. In a tweet posted yesterday, Musk wrote, quote, To independent-minded voters, shared power curbs the worst excesses of both parties. Therefore, I recommend voting for a Republican Congress, given that the presidency is Democratic. In a follow-up tweet, the new Twitter owner further highlighted that it is unlikely that hardcore Democrats and Republicans will vote against their party. So it's up to independent voters to change the balance of power. Twitter published new rules for what the platform will allow, and they ban glorification of violence, promotion of terrorism, child sexual exploitation, and also targeted harassment. But the policy does not mention, as of yet, misinformation. So that is an interesting development. Yeah, lots of uh, lots of Elon stuff. Um, the, uh, so we should only touch on it briefly because I guess we mentioned it um, in in the top of the show, but. Uh, so his his exhortation to vote for Republicans as a way to balance power is not a sentiment that I find appalling. I, I sort of agree with that sentiment as someone who doesn't like Republicans or Democrats. Um, I do think, obviously, if a previous CEO of Twitter had like said you should vote for Democrats during the Trump administration, there would have been a lot of anger on including the I think probably from people like Elon Musk, who would have seen that as an unfair kind of um, putting one's thumb on. Yeah, the it scale. speaks to what I said. I think uh, earlier this week that. If he wants to be the, he, he shouldn't strive to be both the referee and then one of the players, one of the sides. Yeah, that I, will I, look. I mean, he can do whatever he wants. He owns the company. I'm just for the, for optics. I don't think that's a good look. Yeah, but I, I would have warned him. I've never felt so free and happy as when I was an, an anonymous tweeter, just yeah. living my best life. But when you're working for a, a journalistic institution, where you're working for a campaign, and your responsibilities aren't just to yourself, but the institution, the game changes. Yeah. And I think what people have been really frustrated by is that he had all of these criticisms before he was CEO. And then very quickly, as advertisers started to pull out because he was making the um, site more unpredictable uh, and creating conditions that don't serve how he actually makes money, how the site actually makes money, suddenly he rushes to reassure everybody that there are going to be content policies that make it a friendly atmosphere for advertisers. And what has become increasingly clear is that as always is the case, it's a kind of corporate speech curbing that is going on here, where it's about corporations wanting to make money on the platform that's driving a lot of the content moderation decisions as opposed to wokeness. Now, there is some of the other stuff that's mm, gone on I with the totally agree with that, Hunter, but, yeah. Hunter laptop policy. But yeah. the flip-flopping you're seeing from Elon Musk, where he keeps issuing these new Twitter rules that people are making memes about because they're a mile long, suggests that he's very much learning on the job, but a lot of people could have warned him on, uh, in advance. Yeah, I, I mean, I think a lot of that is fair. I don't know. I'm, I don't know if anything's changed or not. I'm having a better time on Twitter. It seems to me some something, I don't know what it was, but something has been undone yeah. that uh, has brought people back and my engagement is up. Um, I think you, you might have had this, a similar well, experience. You, Twitter so. use, apparently, according to Elon Musk's tweets, at least, is at a record high. Yeah. So people are on the platform, even if they're complaining about how they're going to leave Well, I don't the believe any of these celebrities. Like, no, I'm done. I'm yeah, off. I I'm gone. Uh, and then they come back. No, I'm just back to tell you to vote for Democrats. Now I'm really gone. Yeah, also, they're not, they're not going to go. nobody they're cared about go. them. People who are famous because they're actors and actresses. Nobody cares. They weren't famous because of Twitter. They're not journalists and the, pe the kind of people who really, uh, for, for yeah. whom Twitter really mattered. I will make this last point, though, about a divided government. 
government. Eric Levitt wrote a piece uh, a couple of weeks ago that I did a radar about, about what is going to likely happen if there is a divided government. Remember the Obama years when it was all about uh, the debt ceiling and holding Democrats hostage over the debt ceiling? Um, Eric Levitt wrote that the the GOP's stated explicit uh, plan to fight inflation is to try to cut Medicare and Social Security, mm -hmm. and they're going to hold up the government, the ability to make p payments for uh, Social Security, Medicare, and all other government funding in order to get that kind of result. So I do think that there are going to be some negative implications for a divided government that people should look to if those are uh, political priorities for them. Mm -hmm. On the flip side, we could have a different uh, Ukraine funding policy with divided government. So that'd be something perhaps to it's possible. look forward to. Forward to. Um, the, other, one other, the last thing I want to say on the Elon front, you know, as he grapples with the uh, the police, the policing of misinformation, that at least is not, I think, generally a category of, of censorship that's being done in the interest of advertisers. Maybe in some cases, it's a, it's a well, in many of the cases, it's been foisted on them by, by the certainty of the mainstream media and national security officials that this piece of content is Russian-derived and should be gone. That is something that I, I think Elon... In, in theory, is well positioned to stand yeah. to resist and stand up to, and also, and this was already happening. So this is not even an Elon decision, although it's kind of coinciding its rollout with his takeover. Is the community notes feature mm -hmm. that the, the the giving fact checking abilities more to this to the to the users rather than having it being done aggressively by the site itself or yeah. by you know Facebook has this independent group doing it that's terrible mm -hmm. in several independent groups. I quite like this mm -hmm. as the answer to misinformation, not to say that because, because the, the censor, the moderators will get it wrong. They will get calls wrong. Sometimes they'll get it right, right. sometimes they'll get it wrong. The, the, the thought is that in a healthy, functioning, social dialogue climate, this could be wrong, we'll find out, is that with enough, if everyone can do the fact checking? Yeah, I think that's we'll great. Have I have no outcome. problem with Birdwatch. Here's where there's a problem: that Elon Musk said a lot of things about free speech, and then immediately started banning people permanently for the from the platform for making fun of him. So he famously tweeted, comedy is alive now. I have Twitter. Everything's going to be good. And he then proceeded to ban a bunch of parody accounts where people changed well, their names. And here, combined with the fact that he wants to change the verification process from its original purpose, which was to protect people from having fake parody accounts of them that genuinely confuse people. He now wants to make it so that everybody can have a blue check if they pay him $8, if they pay Twitter $8. At the same time, he wants to protect himself from being parodied by literally banning without warning accounts that make jokes about him on the app. I think that accusation of, hypo of hypocrisy is not entirely unfair, don't get me wrong. However, the policy was apparently already in place that if you're verified, you cannot um, change your name in a way that would make it not obvious who you right, are. Right, people in a, who have put parody in their account are you still put getting parody, banned. Well, he says if you say parody, you're he, not going to get He was not well. being truthful about that. And there, I mean, we can pull up some examples. I might end up doing a radar about this tomorrow. Um, but I think that, look, there was, there's some stuff to look forward to. I enjoy being unblocked. And I think that on certain issues, Russian disinformation, for instance, he is going to be more constant and not, let's say, banning people who talk about Ukraine and not the way that you're supposed to talk about Ukraine. Like but Brianna. it's a mixed bag. <laughs> <laughs> like Brianna <laughs> But it's a mixed bag. So we'll continue to cover that. And we'll have more rising for you right after this.
was the red wave that wasn't, in my view. The polls are closed after a long night of vote tallying. Control of Congress still hanging in the balance as both parties have yet to firmly wrest control of either chamber. There are hotly contested Senate races that are not uh, completely wrapped up in Arizona and Nevada. Georgia remains too close to call, could be headed to a runoff. Georgia officials saying it's actually safe to say that there will be a runoff after all. Republicans currently hold 49 seats to Democrats 48, and at this point it's anyone's game, although things are looking much better for Democrats uh, than the kind of pundits had it over the last couple weeks. Um, Democrats in battleground districts across the country have managed to hold on to many seats, outperforming initial expectations. So despite that, Republicans still, however, expected to pick up the seats they need to recapture the House in the coming days, though not at all by the margins uh, that some had expected. So what are the night's biggest wins? In Pennsylvania, Democrats swept the state's Senate and gubernatorial races, delivering wins to Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman and State Attorney General Josh Shapiro. Meanwhile, down south, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, Kemp will retain his seat after defeating Democratic hopeful Stacey Abrams, as will Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who sent his Democratic challenger Charlie Crist packing after winning almost 60 percent of the vote. In Ohio Senate race, J.D. Vance, uh, the Republican, beat Congressman Tim Ryan in one of the only victories for a true kind of Trump Republican. Trump-backed candidates who lost their races include Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania and Doug Mastriano, and then also Don Bolduck in New Hampshire. Meanwhile, the fate of MAGA warrior Carrie Lake, who's the Arizona gubernatorial candidate, and then Herschel Walker uh, uh, is the Georgia Senate candidate, Blake Masters the Arizona Senate candidate, those are undecided still. Here's what the former president himself had to say about his influence before the polls closed yesterday. The results for Republicans, um, how much of that will be because of Donald Trump? Well, I think if they win, I should get all the credit. And if they lose, I should not be blamed at all, okay? But it'll probably be just the opposite. Uh, when they win, I think they're going to do very well. I'll probably be given very little credit, even though in many cases I told people to run. And they ran, and they turned out to be very good candidates. They did not turn out to be very good <laughs> candidates. Let's just call it what it is. Um, so, so the polling so far is basically fine, um, although it, is, it was looking a little, maybe a little off in Arizona. Um, Carrie Lake right now is, uh, is I think, very much underperforming. How do you the mean the polling were. is basically fine? Well, the po not the punditry, but the polling had this as a pretty tight, mm. 50, you know, a, a 50 Four percent chance of Republicans winning the Senate, with a maybe a 50-50 or a 49-51 outcome. That is where we're headed right now. Um, some some people got over their skis and said, "Oh, Republicans are going to win. They're going to win New Hampshire too. They're going to win New York governor." A race. lot of people did. So, to what That's do you attribute happening. that kind of uh, bullish opinion from the right or from the left as well yeah. about the right? Yeah, we're, I mean, there's so much to get into, but um, I, I think. And I said this a couple of weeks ago when the when the fortunes of the Republicans didn't seem as good. Um, the candidate quality matters. And you know, Trump's bragging there about having picked people like Dr. Oz, who has lost. Um, Blake Masters, who looks likely to lose in Arizona. Herschel Walker, maybe it'll go to a runoff, but he's underperforming with Brian Kemp, the gubernatorial candidate, who Trump is no fan of because of the election stuff. He, Kemp won easily. So, so it's, where, uh, where it's, it's not a good showing for, frankly, it's a bad showing for Trump himself. Where do you put Adam Laxalt hanging on? Uh, right. Where do you put J.D. Vance? And what do you do about DeSantis being someone who, at one point, Trump used to brag a lot about putting on the map? 
J.D. Vance uh, is the Trumpiest candidate to have a good night, for sure. Although, remember that Republicans spent $30 million in that race because Tim Ryan ended up being pretty competitive in the polling. That was money that could have been spent um, in Pennsylvania. It could have been spent in Georgia. It could have been spent in Arizona. So even though, yeah, Ohio is a redder state, it was safer for a, for a Trump Republican than in some of these other places, I don't know that that ends up being... It's a it's a technical win, so that's all that counts. But there's a there's a larger issue in Nevada. So my perception of Laxalt, and I'm less familiar with this candidate than the others we've been discussing, mm. um, is that he has not run in the general election as full. I mean, he is. I think he's quite certainly conservative, certainly Trump supporting. Don't get me wrong. He is by no means a never Trump person. My understanding is he has not run. Uh, as a hardcore, let's relitigate 2020 in the same way that uh, Kerry Lake, Blake Masters, and others have. You, you uh, have some counter. Yeah, I mean, Cortez Mastro, his opponent, has certainly leaned into the things he has said in the past about the election. Yeah, uh, I mean, he was on, I believe, uh, Trump's um, litigation yeah. team that was litigating these cases unsuccessfully in the wake of the election. He he did. He was, he was not an incidental player. He wasn't someone who made a casual comment about the big lie in the middle of all of this. And certainly, you know, Catherine Cortez Mastro has been making quite a bit of it in terms of her messaging, and I wonder how much of an effect yeah. that had in the state as well. But Blake Masters ran an ad saying, mm-hmm. I believe Donald Trump r- won the 2020 election. Mm-hmm. He's, this is the Arizona Senate candidate. That hurts you. Arizona's a, yeah. it's a divided state. Nevada's a divided state. Well, what about I don't think Laxalt did that. Because there has been a lot of commentary about how Democrats were misreading the room with respect to not focusing on inflation and not focusing on crime. I went back through yesterday and listened to a lot of the stump speeches and uh, commentary and debates or whatever kind of debate-like event that these people had. And Republicans were hitting those messaging, that messaging strong. It does not seem to have panned out. What do you make of the rhetoric that says... People rank um, the economy, crime, et cetera. Democrats are soft in those issues. Did Republicans fail to deliver substantively on a pitch about what they were affirmatively going to do about those issues? And did that ultimately hurt them? I think I agree with you in part and maybe partly disagree. Lee Zeldin, the New York gubernatorial candidate, Republican candidate, so he lost. He did pretty well. He, He historically the best showing for a Republican in a very long time explicitly running on the crime issue. So I I don't know that that shows that Republicans were wrong to lean into that or they didn't offer anything. However, it is clear that despite all the polling we have, despite all the, the, the focus groups, everything we have su- suggesting that voters are fed up with the economic situation and do not trust and do not appreciate what the Biden administration's plan for it is, they did not think Republicans had anything to do about it. They, they did not turn to Republicans to fix it, perhaps because, and I know you've asked a couple of Republican guests we've had on the show, well, what are you actually going to do? Yeah. They haven't had satisfying answers. I can admit that. Yeah. Um, and and I, that certainly that certainly could have hurt. And, uh, and look, abortion did clearly hurt in some ways. Uh, yep. we, we, we're having the results we expected four months ago, uh, basically, that, that despite all the unpopularity of the Biden administration or them not really connecting the bad situation, um, I, voters do not want, I think, the hardest right 
social conservative version that uh, Republicans have served up. They've I guess said no to that. Dra drag shows didn't make the people turn out in the way that they expected. <laughs> what a surprise that Americans top. I mean, you're, you're right, though, that there is a kind of um, leaning so far into the culture war, an issue that doesn't have a lot of uh, policy ramifications. Yeah, that's so, also not the economy. It does, it's also it not inflation. It's also not yeah. talking about the economy. I, I don't think yeah. they're wrong about that. Well, Democrats faced flack in recent weeks for the party's focus on Roe v. Wade, with critics noting that abortion messaging came at the almost total expense of messaging on the economy. So how did the issue perform at the ballot yesterday? Voters in Michigan, California, and Vermont all voted to approve constitutional amendments protecting the right to abortion. Meanwhile, an anti-abortion measure in Kentucky continues to falter, with current tallies showing 56% of voters disapprove of the referendum. Nationwide exit polling conducted by NBC News shows that abortion ranked just behind inflation when it came to issues driving voters to the polls, and they're followed by crime, guns, and immigration. So, yeah, it. Uh, I think it... It'd be hard to say it didn't have an effect. Um, uh, clearly it did. Um, look, I, I think the message to Republicans is pretty clear. It, in fact, it was clear even before this. It's <laughs> like I'm seeing all these Republicans saying, yeah. man, Trump is just an albatross around our neck. We have to be rid of him. Was that not clear when he, through his buffoonery, caused Republicans to lose the Georgia runoffs? Was that not clear when he himself was defeated in a presidential election? He has won one election against Hillary Clinton a very historically disliked um, Democratic candidate who ran a disastrous, who, who just like forgot to campaign yeah. in the two states that were most important. Yeah. And he won under those circumstances and has not won and has not delivered any uh, a, a political victories, campaign well, focus look, victories that's one more victory than Stacey Abrams has had under her belt. <laughs> and, it's, and, it's and we're going to get to her later. And we're also going to get to uh, Ron DeSantis, who did have a good night. We're going to talk about that. Yeah, but, um, but the, the point about women is an interesting one. I believe uh, Fetterman won 57% of the female vote. Another story that we should get into later today is the value of the youth vote, which I think mm -hmm. is wrapped up in also the concerns about abortion and the lack of potency in some of the conservative messaging that didn't get to core issues. Mm -hmm. Also, there was a lot of uh, hand-wringing. Tim Ryan, who lost, um, was very anti-student debt cancellation. And there are people who are saying that that was a huge mistake mm. and that youth turnout was riding on the wings of promises as yet unfulfilled promises, but promises nonetheless from the Biden administration to do something about the student debt crisis. So a lot of moving parts here. A lot of moving parts. If I was Republicans, I would, I would say, how can we clone... Brian Kemp's and Glenn Youngkin's mm. of the world. These seem to be the Republicans who are acceptable to moderate or swing or independent voters, not the likes of Dr. Oz and Blake Masters, mm. etc. Mm. Well, we will absolutely be discussing more of the election results all show, really. So stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. That was Stacey Abrams conceding last night after suffering a second loss to Republican Governor Brian Kemp. Abrams first ran against him back in 2018 on a similar platform, aiming to curb voter suppression, expanding access to health care, protecting abortion rights, and Internet access. Abrams narrowly lost her bid for the governor's mansion by eight 
percentage points, not so narrowly. Yeah. In Texas, Democratic challenger Beto O'Rourke also made an unsuccessful attempt to unseat the governor. He lost to Republican Greg Abbott by nearly 12 percentage points. Here's a little bit from his concession speech. Without fail, the unconditional love and support and the push that you give me day in and day out kept me going throughout this. So, Mom, I love you so much. Who knows what's next for, for any of us, right? Um, but but uh, I, I just cannot thank you enough. O'Rourke made a go, we remember, in 2018 for Senator Ted Cruz's seat, but did not win there either. Abrams and O'Rourke both ran on progressive platforms, but did not bring home victory uh, twice. They're the Vanity Fair candidates. So what do you think, Abrams, O'Rourke, 2024? Yeah, I mean, you know me, I'm going to push back against the word progressive being applied here. I know has, this is a little bit of nitpicking, but a lot of folks were critical sure. of Abrams kind of walking back. I think her gen genuine progressive bona fides from her kind of college and grad school years. She was once, in her first in her first cycle, remember, she got in trouble for a picture that emerged of her like burning an American flag on, on campus. She has completely transformed from that person. You're like, oh, how I long for the old. <laughs> Old, I mean, look, Abrams. Whatever you want to say about that, that was the kind of person who was not going to back yeah. down from, I think, authentic statements in support of the defund movement and support of the protest, the George Floyd protest, the way that she did over the course of this most recent race. And frankly, there are some key differences between how she run, ran this time and how she ran even in 2018, when she had a much more broad populist message and did a good job connecting with a lot of rural Georgia voters who were not black. Yeah. Now she, I think, has overinvested in not just quote unquote progressive issues, but the specific issue of voter suppression, which despite, as we covered on the show, raising millions of dollars, her, her PAC Fair Fight drummed up more than $110 million over the past four years with very little show for it. Brittany Gibson was on the show, I believe last week, talking about how um, $9.4 went to legal fees yeah. for cases that were yeah. not successful to a law firm that was uh, uh, headed by her close friend and gubernatorial um, campaign chair, which seems untoward in many people's eyes. Yeah. All of that was hinged, like so much of this money and effort was hinged on this idea of voter suppression. And we see historic turnout over and over again in the state. And I think it's just not gelling for voters. And Abrams wants you to believe that talking about things like that is an example of misinformation targeting mm. uh, her key constituency, mm. black male voters. She, said, she ex has explicitly thrown them under the bus. She said they were targeted with misinformation. Keisha Lance Bottoms backed up yep. that uh, talking point when she was interviewed. Um, I saw um, there was a speaker at Howard University um, the other day. Mm -hmm. an author and activist who also said Dis the demon of disinformation mm -hmm. is uh, is affecting black male voters mm -hmm. um, and, and when you say misinformation what you're what you're what you're hinting at is some kind of nefarious Russian backed plot you're, you're mm -hmm. going back to 20 that's what that's let's read between the lines mm -hmm. you're saying Russian social media forces are trying to convince uh, black voters or black male voters that the Democrats don't do enough for them and they should just stay home which is a, a message that is totally fair to make not actually nefarious, not also, also not changing the results of elections in 2016 yeah. or anywhere else. But that's the excuse making that Stacey Abrams uh, uh, clings to. And also O'Rourke, you know, this is someone who d did well but did not win against Ted Cruz, then thought he could run for president, 
didn't succeed at that, and now he's not succeeded at that. These these are two people. I, I put them together because I, I think they're in the in the same bucket of people who were minted to stardom and yes. celebrity status by the mainstream media, yes. or progressive media, not left but progressive. Yeah. I, you know, I, I yeah, try yeah. to right. draw a little bit of a distinction there. Um, we're celebrated. We said these are our people, even though they have no. A very little proven track record of winning. Yeah, I mean, Ryan Zitgraf wrote a really uh, compelling case here in Compact, an article uh, published earlier this week called A Democratic Star Feels Upward that really describes yeah. how the Democratic Party is trying to uh, run on the strategy of minting national stars and hoping they perform well, trying to, to to capture the Obama magic in a way that was frankly not how Obama came on the scene, and I think which reads as really inorganic. So you're watching people like Pete Buttigieg do these strained Obama impressions, people like Beto O'Rourke doing these strained Obama impressions. I saw a local candidate here in D.C. on posters who seemed to be doing a Beto O'Rourke impression of Barack Obama, and it's just getting out of control. And at some point, the Democratic Party has to realize this strategy is not working. People don't seem to be wanting to vote for a celebrity. If you look at the success of someone like um, John Fetterman, I hope that proves the value of being integrated into a community, of having organic name recognition that comes from running locally as opposed to being kind of dropped down from the CNN pundit land. Um, even Carrie Lake, to the extent that she is modeled in this way, is not doing as well as some people had suggested. And I, I don't know how long it's going to take, how many of these kind of candidates it's going to take for the Democratic Party learns its lesson. Genuine, uh, genuine character, authenticity. It, it matters to voters on both sides. And some of the, it's the media, for, for Democrats, they have a problem with you know, elite media trying to say, oh, these are the people everybody should be enthusiastic about, even though voters maybe re reject those people. On the Republican side, it's more of a Trump selection process that makes a subset of Republicans happy and no one else happy. But both parties are grappling with this, that there's a, there's a people like certain people. Yes. <laughs> it's hard to put your finger on exactly what it is. If you talk to real voters, they say, oh yeah, I like him or I like her. I don't like him. He's a, he's a phony. He's sleazy or something. And, and, and those of us who obsess over politics and over you know, various things, we, we, we can miss the, the, it's the character of these people. Who you identify yes. with matters in a way that, um, that pundits can gloss over. And, and look at the gap between Stacey Abrams' performance, where she has clearly lost, and the Raphael Warnock performance, where it's yeah. certain to go to a runoff at this point, yeah. um, in the same state. There's been a lot of talk about black men, but it seems to be that Black men did choose to vote for um, uh, Raphael Warnock here. Now, is that misogyny, misogynoir? I don't know. I'm sure the takes will be coming yeah. down the pike yeah. as, as the words are coming out of my mouth. Someone's furiously writing a, you know, a, a Jezebel article up about this. But at the end of the day, ca you know, castigating those kind of voters doesn't get them to the polls. You have to figure out what appeals to them. And I think kind of preemptively blaming any kind mm -hmm. of voter block in that way isn't going to get you the results that you want. Mm. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention, and now seems as good a time as any to mention it, um, there is no way Joe Biden is not running for re-election. Yeah. Joe Biden is running for re-election. Yeah. Kamala Harris is running for re-election as his VP. That will be the ticket. If there was any, I, I think it was always going to be that way, but well, do you think there's no, oh, no one should, look at, look at that. They just staved off. Um, the, the defeat that everyone expected, mm -hmm. um, it, I don't know how they did it. We're still going to be discussing it and trying to figure it out. But, yeah, this is going to quiet 
I mean, if they're smart, this should quiet any discussion of trying to find an alternative to Biden in 2024. Biden, Biden Trump, the 2024 no matchup that nobody asked for. <laughs> oh, tomorrow on Rising, Executive Vice President of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft will join us to break down, uh, Trita Parsi will join us to break down what the election results mean for U.S. involvement in the Ukraine-Russia conflict. Obviously, we want to get into more. This was a day for politics, but we'll certainly get into more of the policy ramifications for divided government or some of the new uh, faces we'll be seeing in Congress. We'll also speak with managing editor of the Texas Tribune, the managing editor of the Texas Tribune, about key races in Texas and the potential implications as we look ahead to 2024. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while on the go, we are available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Mm. Well, this has been fun. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Uh, hopefully we'll know more. Some of these races still to be decided. So stay tuned for more Rising. President Biden appeared triumphant while speaking to reporters yesterday after Democrats managed to stave off the predicted red wave on Election Day. Perhaps feeling a somewhat newfound confidence, the commander in chief had this to say about uh, when pushed on his job performance thus far. 75 percent of voters say the country is heading in the wrong direction despite the results of last night. What in the next two years do you intend to do differently uh, to change people's uh, opinion of the direction of the country, particularly as you contemplate a run for president in 2024? Nothing, because they're just finding out what we're doing. The more they know about what we're doing, the more support there is. Do you know anybody who wants us to get rid of the change we made on prescription drug prices and raise prices again? Do you know anybody who wants us to walk away from building those roads and bridges and, and the Internet and so on? Later, Biden made his strongest public commitment yet to running for re-election in 2024. When I announce, if I announce, my intention is that I run again, but I'm a great respecter of fate, and uh, this is ultimately a family decision. I think everybody wants me to run, but they're going, we're going to have discussions about it. My guess is it'd be early next year we make that judgment. Two-thirds of Americans in exit polls say that they don't think you should run for re-election. What is your message to them, and how does that factor into your final decision about whether or not to run for re-election? It doesn't. What's your message to them? To those two-thirds of Americans? Watch me. <laughs> I said it all along, and I will say it again. Joe Biden will be the Democratic Party's candidate for president in uh, the next election cycle. I mean, is there something to this Biden approach? He's asked what he would do differently, what what the Democrats are going to go do differently going forward. He says nothing. <laughs> he's he's asked, do you care, you know, about the polls that say that people don't want you to run again? He says no. And then he oversees what is a historic kind of a success in terms yeah. of midterms for uh, a sitting president. Uh, you know, the opposite party. Like yeah. normally, you lose on the average of twenty-seven seats. Democrats are only down eight right now. Is he right? At, at the end of the day, it's about results. It's about delivering. It's about winning. And this is a huge win. It's just a huge win. It's a huge win for him, for him specifically, despite all of the polling suggesting that voters were very concerned, very spooked about the state of the economy, very uncertain about Joe Biden and, and his age and everything else going on. At the end of the day, they, they, they still voted, by and large, for Democratic policies. They did not vote for Republican figures 
near, to nearly the extent we would have expected historically or based on, on these conditions. I liken this sort of press conference. You're a House of the Dragons fan. This I am. was his, uh, the old king, Viserys, stumbles into the, uh, the throne room <laughs> in uh, the eighth episode. You know, he, he's, been on his, he's been out, he's dying. He picks his crown off the ground. He sits himself down in the Iron Throne and he says, okay, we're going to resettle this succession matter. Everyone has to re-swear fealty to me. That's what it was. Yeah, but we know how that ends. Well, it ends badly. But, it uh, ends badly. Look, so I have mixed feelings about this because, you know, I, I, my sympathies obviously lead from, from a policy perspective toward the Democrats. I am concerned, though, that Democrats are stealing valor, as it were, from abortion, and mm -hmm. that so much of the success here really was about people being afraid of Roe. Young people and single women voters in particular turning out with overwhelming preference for the Democratic Party seems to have carried them across the finish line. and. Single-handedly held but that up is not the, that, red wave. But I do, that is not an unexpected result whatsoever. Like, well, of course, young people are going to vote. Young people always vote. Well, no, that's in not record true. We've seen, we've seen the, we have unprecedented turnout in young voters, uh, the highest numbers since 2018. So it's not just that well, young it was two people. Cycles ago. Yeah, but it's not just that young people are turning out for Democrats. It's that yeah. they actually did turn out in high numbers. And if that continues to be a trend, of course, that puts Republicans in a, in a difficult spot. But in all likelihood, these things ebb and flow. And I don't think that Democrats should get too comfortable with the idea that they're safe or that this is about the power of Joe Biden as opposed to these circumstances that keep falling into his lap. Well, no party should ever get too comfortable. At, but And Republicans are not giving young people any reason to vote for them. And that's uh, that's definitely an issue. I was seeing uh, Laura Ingram brought that up on her show last night, I think, or I saw a clip of it this morning. And she was saying, look, um, we, are, we, we do not have a coalition that is large enough right now. We need to win voters outside our coalition. And, and you know, she didn't say anything substantive about what that means policy-wise. Right. But I, th I think the implication very much is some of this hard um, social conservative stuff, like abortion, probably some other things. Some of the, the trans, I'm sorry, yeah, the no, kids I, yeah, do not care yeah. about your drag races. The, the single women and the young people who carried the Democrats over the finish line on Tuesday love a drag brunch. <laughs> Like nothing else in the world. And so they have to find a different line of attack. We were talking a little yeah. bit earlier in the makeup room about the things that everybody universally hates, yeah. Comcast, antitrust. There are a lot of you know true villains out there in the world that if Republicans really wanted to focus on, they could. But I do think that there is a diminishing returns on some of this culture war stuff. Yeah. Well, President Biden, of course, didn't miss the opportunity to deliver a series of rhetorical jabs at his political arch nemesis, Donald Trump. Let's watch that. How do you reassure them if that is the reason for their questioning that the former president will not return, that his political movement, which is still very strong, uh, will not oh, yeah. once again take power in the United <laughs> States? Well, um, who do you think would be the tougher competitor, Ron DeSantis or former President Trump? And how is that factoring into your decision? It'll be fun watching them take on each other. <laughs> All right. Online betting markets now give Florida Governor Ron DeSantis the advantage to take the White House in 2024, even over Trump. Meanwhile, the former president spent his Wednesday uh, fervently fighting allegations that Tuesday midterm re represented a blowout 
uh, represented a blow rather to the MAGA movement. He told Fox News Digital, quote, there is a fake news narrative that I was furious. It is just the opposite. The people I endorsed did very well. I was battling 98 batting 98.6% in the primaries and 216 to 19 in the general election. That is amazing. We had tremendous success. Why would anything change? So there, there you go. There's your brain on Trump. So um, look, I, I can't disagree with Biden on that one. I also uh, have a selfish desire to see mm -hmm. them go up against each other. But on the other hand of things, the same the, that 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 tee up concerns me for the same reason that the Democrats' successes on Tuesday concerns me a little bit, which is that. It will be a conversation about the theatrics of it all. It'll be a non-substantive conversation. It will, won't have any push to talk about the substantive issues that are still unresolved. Same with the Joe Biden scenario. Winning is, is, is good, broadly speaking, for the possibility of Democrats actually enacting beneficial policies. But the reality is they have declined to do so, not just because of obstruction in Congress, mm -hmm. but because of choices Joe Biden has made. And I think the student debt cancellation um, is a glowing example of that. So many young people, I think, really did turn out because of the lure of getting their debt canceled. But the way Joe Biden has gone about this made it maximally possible for people to obstruct what is actually from being I think we're going to talk more uh, in another segment specifically about that. Uh, the only other thing I wanted to bring up here is uh, Republicans have really ruined, they've obviously ruined this chance, but the next, um, uh, the next elections will also have a lot of Senate seats at risk for Democrats, where Republicans, again, just because of the nature of the map, will have the opportunity for pickups. If they had cleaned up the way they were, the way the most favorable pro uh, projection was, if they'd cleaned up this time, they could have gotten to 60 next time. Mm. And they could have and they could have had President DeSantis, uh, House of Representatives that's Republican, the Speaker, a Republican Speaker, 60 in the Senate, and a, and a Republican majority Supreme Court. That would have been the most, uh, the most leeway that any political party would have had to enact whatever their vision is since FDR, more so, honestly, the, the, most in, the most in over 100 years. And that chance will not materialize yeah, because of what happened on Tuesday. And I think the specter of that is exactly why abortion was such a strong argument this time around, because you've got members of your own party flirting with the idea of a national abortion ban, and mm -hmm. that kind of power and that kind of um, legislative push is not what the overwhelming majority of Americans want. Mm. Well, we've got more election coverage coming up next. Stay tuned for that. President Volodymyr Zelensky recently changed his stance on peace talks with Russia. According to Politico, the Ukrainian president agreed that peace talks can begin with Russian President Vladimir Putin still in power. This following a visit with National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. Several candidates in the 2022 midterms campaigned on Ukraine. Marjorie Taylor Greene, who won her re-election bid, promised, quote, under Republicans, not another penny will go to Ukraine. According to Alexei Goncharenko, a member of the European Solidarity Party in Ukraine, Ukrainians are welcoming the early results of the midterm elections, happy with the defeat of some of the more right-leaning isolationist candidates by candidates who have supported U.S. assistance to Ukraine. Joining us now to discuss how the midterm results could impact U.S. policy on the Ukraine-Russia conflict is Executive Vice President at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, Dr. Trita Parsi. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. 
Yep, thanks for joining us. So we were, some people were expecting a bigger um, victory in the House among Republicans, many of whom had promised to rethink our kind of endless commitment to sending money to Ukraine. Um, that you know, victory was not that vast, although it still does look like Republicans will take the House. Um, I, I, what do you make of the of the I guess enthusiasm for for more pro Democratic Party outcome here uh, among Ukrainians? And then are we should we be excited about the prospect of actually pushing for maybe negotiations between Zelensky and Putin? Well, first of all, I don't think anyone went to the polls voting on foreign policy this time around at about other issues. So the outcome of the elections is not. Uh, a barometer of where the American public is on the war in Ukraine, what the U.S. should or shouldn't do. Uh, polls have shown quite clearly that the public wants to see more diplomacy. There is definitely support for Ukraine, but it's not endless and it's not without questions. What I think we're seeing right now is that the White House actually has been pursuing the very same things that the progressives in that uh, by now infamous or perhaps visionary um, uh, CPC letter uh, called for, which is to actually see more diplomacy, get towards some form of realistic framework to put an end to this war, and, and, and also having direct Russia-U.S. contacts. And it turns out that the White House is actually pursuing exactly what the CPC was asking for, and that I think makes some of those who were so critical of the letter look rather strange. Yeah, Dr. Parsi, what is going on there? We've covered this extensively. The blow up over the letter was bizarre. Do you think this kind of um, new news that negotiations are in progress is because of some of the backlash to the letter? Do you think the backlash to the letter was because these, these talks were already planned, but for some reason they didn't want that to be, an, be open knowledge? What, what do you see the relationship being there? Well, I, I think the fact that the letter came out uh, is a key reason as to the why, why, why the White House came clean about mm. the fact that it's actually engaging in diplomacy. It became clear to the White House, I believe, that their pursuit of diplomacy was a good thing and that the public would actually welcome it. And in fact, if they weren't coming out with it, they may actually be paying a cost because people were starting to get frustrated at what appeared to be a lack of diplomacy. Mm -hmm. I think the, uh, the reaction... Uh, of the letter is because there's some folks out there who are some sort of self-appointed thought police who believe that they're supposed to go out there and uh, squash any debate that may go in a direction that they think is opposite to what the White House wants. The problem is they have no clue what the White House wants because clearly the White House wanted diplomacy, was engaged in diplomacy, and probably, frankly, welcomed the idea of a letter and the opening of a political space that the letter did provide, despite of mm. the way that it played out, because that's what they needed. I've done, I've been involved in some things. I've studied diplomacy quite a lot. There are many instances in which you actually do need to have secret negotiations. Mm -hmm. This one does not qualify. Mm -hmm. So my, my thought is that the only reason why the White House was not open about the diplomacy that was taking place was precisely out of the fear of the backlash, not from the American public, but from these pundits and the broader blob who has taken this extreme anti-diplomacy position that is now clearly the opposite position of what the White House is pursuing. Yeah, they fear backlash perhaps from actor Sean Penn, who uh, met with President Zelensky and offered him a unique gift. Let's watch that. 
This is for you. Oh, Sean. Yes. <laughs> no. Please. That it is was, yours. No, I, I feel terrible outside. I just, it's just a symbolic, silly thing. Yes, but, but it's, I, if but I know, but if I know this is here with you, then I'll, then I'll feel better and stronger to, for the fight. So great, great honor, but, yeah. but until we will. When you, when you win, bring it back to Malibu. Right. Yes. Right. Okay. Because I'll feel okay. much better knowing there's a piece of me here. We have to. important it's not from me it's from Ukraine and it's more With, with that level of like over the top um, uh, support for continuing the war effort until I suppose the utter the a preposterous thing that won't happen, the utter defeat of Russia and the overthrow of Vladimir Putin, um, you can see why there's cultural pressure, I think, exactly like what you were saying, for uh, continuing with the, you know, no negotiation, the hard line kind of position. Yeah, and if we take a look now back about two or three months, we now see that there's been strategic leaks from the White House trying to open up this space you know the revelation that biden was very annoyed with zelensky mm -hmm. because zelensky was asking for more even when the biden administration was providing a tremendous amount of support and that uh, biden apparently lost his temper with zelensky on that call there's a reason why these things are coming out right now is precisely because the biden administration wants to go in a more diplomatic uh, direction and they want and they need to put some pressure on all sides in order to get them to drop unrealistic preconditions for diplomacy. Both sides are going to come to some form of a conversation at some point with maximalist positions. That's inevitable. What you need to avoid is the preconditions that make diplomacy impossible. And we have now seen, and the White House itself has revealed, that they have put some pressure on the Ukrainians to drop their unrealistic uh, demands, their preconditions that would ensure that there's no diplomacy. I assume similar things have been done with the Russians as well, because the signals coming out of Russia are also a bit different. Dr. Price, this is what is so very confusing to me, though. If it is true that Biden isn't the one that, the Biden administration, rather, isn't the one that's putting all the downward pressure on the letter, and there are so many people, colleagues of yours and kind of the left, um, a, you know, progressive foreign policy space, uh, anti-war foreign policy space, like Matt Dust, Bernie Sanders' former policy advisor, um, like Joe Cirincioni, uh, who were so antagonistic to the letter. Matt Dust flip-flopped, said he was for the letter until the backlash started and then was against it. What was motivating that if not an effort to protect the Biden administration? Well, first of all, I, I want to avoid getting into uh, any personal things. I've seen that some of them have. I don't think it's constructive. So let me just say what I my take is on why some people who were not in the know uh, were acting this way. I think they personally thought that this is what they need to do to protect the president. And, you know, that's an instinct that folks have at various times. But to act on it with the arrogance of actually not knowing what's going on and assuming that you do and taking a very hostile position that some did, and I want to name any names, um, uh, towards diplomacy and, 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 and the very, um, yeah, very unconstructive approach to it. This is ultimately really, really uh, uh, negative for the country as a whole, because ultimately the United States does need diplomacy. We need direct talks with the Russians because we have 
a clear interest in avoiding nuclear war. And when even President Obama has come out and said that, you know, the level of the uh, negotiations and uh, communications with the Russians is lower than it ever has been since the Cold War, that is a clear warning sign that, look, there's some changes here that need to be done. And it's very unfortunate that some voices, not all, but some voices have acted of trying to just cement the current situation, thinking that that is how they protect the president, whereas in reality, they were completely out of sync with the president. Okay. What should we hope for or expect when uh, negotiations do take place? Um, you know, what, what, what does Ukraine need to get from Russia to be, you know, kind of okay with its situation? Obviously, we talk a lot about, you know, Vladimir Putin in, in, you know, might need some kind of safe face, uh, face saving, uh, the part of the, he might need to acquire or have independent part of um, the eastern part of Ukraine. Uh, but what you know? What are the Ukrainians going to going to be comfortable with, so they don't feel like they're about to be you know invaded again when the dust settles and the Russian military gets rebuilt? If Russia really doesn't want Ukraine to join NATO. Okay, but is there going to have to be some kind of security or protective agreement from the U.S. or other European nations? So some of these things will come out of the dynamics of diplomacy. It's impossible to completely predict that ahead of time, and I think this is part of the misunderstanding that appears to exist in some quarters about diplomacy. Diplomacy is not going there with a finished uh, uh, proposal and just put it on the table and say, leave it or take it, uh, take it or leave it. Um, there are dynamics in that that will come out that may you know, bring us to a point that is not the one that either side necessarily predicted would happen or had any particular preference for or against. The issue is that some of these things we don't actually know until real conversations begin. And that's why it's so dangerous uh, if talks are not taking place, because so much about diplomacy is actually to collect intelligence on where the other uh, side is on various issues. Are they cracking on some things? How do they see their situation? How can you influence how they see their situation? Not all of it is just about where the line or the border is going to be drawn. So much more goes into diplomacy. And not having enough of it is to the detriment of all of us, particularly the United States, because we have a clear interest in making sure that this conflict comes to an end in the right way, of course, but it nevertheless has to come to an end. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Parsi. Thank you so much for having me. We'll have more rising for you after this. Much to the surprise of Republicans, and perhaps to themselves, Democrats managed to avoid a red wave on Tuesday. In a piece published last night in her Substack, political activist and former presidential hopeful Marianne Williamson highlighted that it wasn't either party's night, but rather the people's, saying, quote, it was neither the Democrats nor the Republicans who spoke loud loudest on Tuesday. It was the voice of the American people that came through loud and clear with a message that said, okay, enough with the crazy, let's get back to who we are. A variety of ballot initiatives across the country revealed where voters uh, stand on several issues uh, directly. Voters in Missouri voted to legalize marijuana. Nebraska voters voted for a $15 minimum wage. And Illinois voted to greenlight collective bargaining. And in five states, including in deep red Kentucky and Montana, voters did, in fact, want to protect access to abortion. Here to talk more about how voters helped fend off a, quote, bloody Tuesday from happening this week is none other than Ms. Williamson herself. Welcome back to the show, Marianne. Oh, thank you so much for having me. 
All right, so many people are characterizing this. It's, it's a weird posture to be in, right? Where not losing as badly as you thought is considered to be a win. And I do think that you're right, that some of the conversation about which party is coming out on top is obscuring a lot of the mixed results we're coming out of, seeing coming out of red states, where you see red states voting for $15 minimum wages, protecting abortion rights, collective bargaining, and on and on and on. So to what do you attribute this turn? Well, I don't see it as a win, but I see it as a reprieve. Mm. I see it as a moment that we can all sort of stand back and not have to be in constant traumatized survival mode, just trying to keep these anti-democratic authoritarian forces from completely obliterating us. So it gives us a chance in a way to regroup. Now, I'm sure that the authoritarian authoritarian forces that are represented by the more than two, 210 uh, election deniers that did win I'm sure that those forces will regroup right now, and I think this is time for us to regroup. And in doing so, we want to recognize what you just said. The country is moving in a progressive direction. People don't always associate the progressive policies that they support with the Democratic Party. But when it comes to things like universal health care, Fox News saying that 65 percent of their viewers feel that it is the government's responsibility to mm -hmm. provide health care for everyone, People are seeing through at last the propagandistic projection onto progressive policies that they represent socialism or the nanny state. So the Democratic Party now, I believe, should align itself with its own progressive base, should align itself with uh, unabashedly with the traditional pillars in an FDR sense of what the Democratic Party once was, the unequivocal and unabashed support for the working people of the United States. If the Democratic Party will align itself with its own progressive base, then, and I think perhaps only then, will we be able to make a, uh, make a real dent in the authoritarian forces, force field that's uh, coming at us and coming at us strongly. Marianne, do you think the messaging from Democratic candidates, the really constant uh, warning about the threat to democracy was effective? I mean, it, frankly, it was something I think we criticized a little bit as being over the top at times, but it seems to have really motivated people to not vote for Republicans or maybe particularly some of these zanier Republican characters or, or in fact, candidates who have, uh, as you point out, um, you know, raised questions about the 2020 election? Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that because I was someone thinking, why is he continuing to talk about that? He should be talking about economic issues. And then I read something right before the election that turned out to be true. It was someone who said he's not talking to Republicans. He's talking to his own base. And I thought that is so interesting because I think actually, as it turns out, there was more wisdom in that than I had expected. I think a lot of people did go, whoa, whoa, this, this is serious. Maybe I better vote. Are, are you surprised at all, Marianne? Because I remember I watched uh, some of Carrie Lake's uh, it wasn't quite a debate, but her debate performance. And she's very poised, and she was, I think, a really good example of Republican messaging from the more Trump-aligned um, wing of the party. She was hitting talking points about uh, concerns about transition surgery for trans youth. She was talking about COVID-era policies and lockdowns. Um, and, and I was worried watching her because of how kind of uh, able she was and messaging on things that I substantively disagree with, but which I feared lot, much of the party actually was prioritizing, much of the country rather was prioritizing. And now we've seen these results don't necessarily reflect that. Do you think that that Republican messaging on those kind of culture issues was ineffective? 
Do you think that the abortion concerns were just a stronger pitch? Um, or or, or, or what, do you, what do you make of the Republican approach to this election and the results that we've seen? Well, you can't look into the hearts and minds of every voter in America and know exactly where they were coming from. But what you just said is what makes the results so interesting. The American people pretty much struck to a center. But that center has to do with the fact that we are so split. In fact, you mentioned Carrie Lake. You said it, she worries you. She terrifies me. Hmm. Now, I don't know uh, if that has actually been called yet, her and the Katie Hobbs race. Has that been called? No, it's still, it's still unsure. We don't know. Okay, but the very fact that it's still unsure. So whether she won or not, even if she loses, she's close to winning. So they are obviously getting somewhere. On the other hand, the American electorate is not a monolith. Other people uh, did care more about abortion, and other people do look at the Carrie Lakes of the world and go, whoa, we're not going there. Um, yeah, she's scary. She has it down. I mean, Obama, in one of his talks, referred to her as well-lit. Um, <laughs> He knows what she's doing in terms of a certain kind of delivery uh, of a message. Hmm. But uh, many of us feel that she is dead wrong about where this country needs to be moving. You know, obviously the night was not a total disappointment for Republicans. They are likely to take the House. The Senate still is potentially in the mix. And then Republicans had a very, very, very good night in Florida, which has gotten redder and redder under Ron DeSantis's leadership. Ron DeSantis obviously quite likely to be a top Republican candidate, if not the Republican candidate, next time round. Um, I, I worry about um, if, if we get better sorted, like, you know, all, all Republicans moving to Florida, moving to Texas, uh, Democrats, um, you know, sorting themselves into some other places. I think they've, always, they've already been, you know, more heavily sorted historically. Um, our politics could get even more angry as uh, if we're fighting for who controls the entire country, but everyone is, uh, pe you know, people who want it a certain way are all in Florida and Texas and people who want another way are all in California and New York. Then the contest for the, pre for the presidency or for national representation in the federal government will just be even more debitter because it's so winner take all. And it's so, uh, you know, you'll force on Florida what Team Blue wants or you'll force on California what Team Red wants. Well, you just made the case for getting rid of the Electoral College. That's, it should just be whatever the majority of mm -hmm. Americans want. It shouldn't have to do what state people, uh, with what state people come from. Um, I do think that in time we will be getting rid of the Electoral College, uh, but not immediately. I think, however, it's the only response, the only way to uh, face the challenge of what you just described. Yeah, Florida has gone uh, all red. Texas, uh, Beto didn't win, but Beto made a dent. Uh, I come from Texas, and um, Texas isn't done yet. And you're right, a lot of Republicans are moving there, but a lot of, of people who are on the left, people who are liberals, progressives, et cetera, are rising up in Texas as well. That story is not over yet. You know, some, some people might say that, you know, Bernie and other progressives have been running on this idea that progressive policies are very popular, but um, although there were progressive gains, the squad has grown um, in the context of this last uh, midterm election, that Bernie himself wasn't able to win, et cetera. And they say, well, what's, what's the gap there? Why is it that if the progressive um, policies are so popular, why do they not seem to be able to coalesce in a, at least a candidate on a national level that can carry people <clears throat> across the finish line? What do you say to that? Well, a, a candidate on a national level who did and could have coalesced the progressive sentiments, 
that is Bernie Sanders, and it was the DNC that suppressed his candidacy uh, in 2016, and clearly there was some institutional suppression of his candidacy as well in 2020. We know that. Uh, Bernie is an institutionalist, and he has chosen uh, to work within the construct. Remember, he is a U.S. senator, so he is working within the institution. I think progressives need to spend less time pointing at other people about the choices they're making, and we have to ask ourselves, what is the best way I can serve? Some people are working within the Democratic. Some people, like yourself, uh, feel that the best way is to work outside it and to do certain criticism from there. I think that all of us need, you know, this is an all systems breakdown we have here, and we need to have an all systems response. It's just like cells in the body. Uh, the, immune cells, the immune cells are, like every other cell, are assigned you to the pancreas, you to the lungs, you to the blood. Each of us, I'm reminded of, of Gandhi's um, expression when he was asked, who is the leader of the Indian independence movement? He said, the small, still voice within. Each of us has to answer the to, has to respond to our own conscience, our own sense of where our skill set can be best put to use. Bernie does what he he does. He's done so much for us. He has opened up so much. Um, before we start criticizing the choices he made, I think each of us has to ask, how can I best serve now? Mm. Uh, one last question, if I if I can. There was some um, fun uh, scuttlebutt on Twitter when the stat broke about how unmarried women women seem to have carried the day for Democrats. Uh, they broke really? for Democrats by a whopping thirty seven percent. Married women went Republican by fourteen points. <clears throat> Married men went Republican by twenty points. Unmarried men went Republican by seven points. But unmarried women broke for Democrats by thirty seven points. What do you think is going on there? I think we know what's going on there. The idea. <laughs> Hello. Um, well, what, what do, you, do you think it's, a, it's an abortion rights issue? Do you think it's a student debt issue? It's like a younger women issue? I think people, listen, an unmarried woman, and this is, this is true in all seriousness, an unmarried woman is having to carry the entire, um, the entire weight, uh, whether she has children or not. She is the sole breadwinner. She is the sole... Um, uh, caretaker of the situation in which she is in. So, of course, she wants to vote for the governmental forces that actually see that government should help people. You know, the Republican Party has become unlike, I mean, there were times in the past when it wasn't this way, but right now it does not want to use the resources of government to help anyone except the very, very rich and huge corporate forces. Yeah. The Democratic Party, at least to some extent, wants to use, and often to a lot, sometimes less, but certainly more, a hell of a lot more than the Republicans, wants to use the forces of government and the resources of government to help people. So of course, an unmarried woman, a woman who's out there carrying the whole weight of her life, likes the idea that her tax dollars are actually going to something that will make the, her life and the life of her children better. She's hmm. smart. Hmm. Well, look, it's always so great to get your insights, Marianne. Thanks for joining us today. Always great to see you as well. Thank you, guys. All right, we'll have more Rising for you right after this. Maricopa County says they expect to have 99% of their ballots counted by Friday. This news comes after approximately 20% of the county's polling sites were experiencing issues with tabulation machines yesterday. County technicians changed the printer settings, which reportedly seemed to have resolved the issue. Um, it usually does. This printer's terrible. You just got to reset gotta it. Plug it, out, plug, plug it, it in. back in. Maybe refill the paper tray. <laughs> it's always like missing that. paper. Toner. Toner problem. <laughs> Toner issue. Robbie's in the 
the case. The campaigns for Republican gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake, U.S. Senate candidate Blake Masters, and the Republican National Committee immediately filed lawsuits to keep polls open until 10 p.m., but a judge denied the request. Maricopa County comp comprises more than half of the state's population. A hearing on the issue was held right before polling places were set to close. According to the court, there was no evidence the glitches stopped voters from casting their ballots. Hmm. Here's gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake responding to the tabulating issues. Things are looking very good for us. They may be trying to slow a red tsunami, but it's coming. And we are going to take back Arizona. Donald Trump also released a video message to Arizona voters uh, on Truth Social on Tuesday afternoon, uh, alleging that the situation was a, quote, complete voter integrity, all caps, disaster, saying people of Arizona don't get out of line until you cast your vote. They are trying to steal the election with bad machines and delay. Don't let it happen. Yeah. Yeah, he said he sells reports are coming in from Arizona. The voting machines are not properly working. Here we go again. The people will not stand for it. Um, so they did have some issues with the machines. My understanding is that right, the machines were reading the ballots wrong, which they were then able to fix. Um, obviously, obviously, that's going to raise concerns with you know people right. who are concerned given about the, election. Given the environment, look. The, so the Maricopa County Superior Court judge funnily enough, named Tim Ryan, mm -hmm. rejected arguments that voters were denied to Tim, the get right. get to Ohio. What are you doing, Tim? <laughs> the conspiracy theories were all oh, about, but um, yeah. says that no one was denied their right to cast ballots because of the glitches with the equipment, saying the court does not have any evidence that any voter was precluded from their right to vote. It was a tabulation issue, not a registration of yeah. vote issue. So that's why the extension to 10 p.m. was not granted, but it has delayed the count here and obviously has created an environment for folks to cast doubt on the ultimate results of this election. Yeah, which, you know, it's, it is very unfortunate, and, and whoever screwed this up um, should really should be fired, because so far it looks to me like the Carrie Lake, uh, out, I mean, we don't know the outcome yet, uh, but she is badly underperforming her, the polling, which had her well ahead. Uh, so, if, so, so if, you have, if you end up having something going wrong with the voting machines, in the in the one race where it really is an outlier from the polling, I mean that is obviously going to make people have some questions. Yeah, and I have to say, Carrie Lake was one of the ones that I thought, despite the point you've been making, and I think you've been very much validated, um, your point you make about uh, candidate choice and how some of the more Trump-aligned mm -hmm. candidates that have been big lie candidates haven't been faring very well. I thought just from watching Carrie Lake and her poise, her control of the room, obviously she's a newscaster who's a well-known name in the state. Um, she presents very well. She's very good at hitting her talking points on these issues that at least the media has said are real uh, albatrosses for Democrats, immigration, crime, the you know trans kids in sports and drag shows and all of that. She hits her beats in a way that I think actually, frankly, sounds a lot less virulent from my subjective opinion, than a lot of the mm. other Republicans. And when I watched the tee-up, now famously, uh, she Hobbs was not willing to debate Carrie Lake, and she made a lot of that, but they had a candidate event where they each spoke consecutively. Carrie won the room. Now, again, debates don't matter. Nobody watches them, et cetera, et cetera. But I was actually, frankly, mm. very surprised by how close this was. Mm. Um, what, what's your take on this race? Yeah, she is... Um she combines right some of the harder right policy positions and rhetoric that I, I think is is harmful to Republican candidates with an admittedly very impressive uh, television 
uh, quality, mm -hmm. star quality kind of mm -hmm. thing. Uh, I mean, what what Donald Trump has shown and it has absolutely been an asset to him is is. Na familiarity, name recognition, which I, she has in Arizona. She has as a she was a TV presenter in uh, in in news there. D Donald Trump also the name recognition, and then also the TV and star and enter the entertainment persona and presence. We have learned is a massive advantage in politics. That many of the same skills that would make you effective at um, at uh, at entertainment, at TV, at punditry, at news commentary, delivery, appearance, yeah. translate. Beautifully to successful campaigning, uh, to, to politics itself, whatever you have staff members do that right. for, the, for being the figurehead of a political movement. Um, it's very it, it, it's similar skills, so it's not surprising to see again. Cardi Lake definitely has those skills the way Trump did. So I, I all I I believed the polling that had her doing doing quite well, but uh, obviously yeah, it, well, it's the, not the, quite landing. The, this, look, this this kind of a election mistake, this kind of technical mistake with the machines is not what Democrats want to be seeing in one of the outstanding blue-leaning states with Mark Kelly um, up about 51% uh, here at the time. Uh, so we'll continue to watch it and see what happens and, decide, and see if this is if, if, despite if Trump's warning that Democrats are trying to delay is a projection to get some delayed um, outcomes here that might uh, benefit uh, Republicans down the pike. Mm, we'll see. More rising right after this. We weathered the storms, but we stood our ground. We did not back down. We had the conviction to guide us and we had the courage to lead. We made promises. We made promises to the people of Florida and we have delivered on those promises. And so today, after four years, the people have delivered their verdict. Freedom is here to stay. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Florida Governor Ron DeSantis delivering a victory speech after his massive win over Democratic challenger and former Republican Governor Charlie Crist last night, helping Republicans deliver a resounding mandate in the Sunshine State. Senator Marco Rubio also squarely defeated his challenger, Democratic Congresswoman Val Demings. DeSantis's decisive victory only stands to ignite further speculation about a 2024 presidential run and potential face-off between the rising GOP star and former president... Donald Trump. And while Trump admitted to personally voting for DeSantis in this year's election, it seems the former president is less than pleased about the prospect of having to fight for the Republican nomination in 2024. Ron is a person I've always had a decent relationship with him. But when I endorsed him, he was he was gone. He was not going to be able to even be a factor in the race. And as soon as I endorsed him, within moments, he the race was over. I got him the nomination. He didn't get it. I got it. Because the minute I made that endorsement, he got it. Then he ran, and he wasn't supposed to be able to win. I did two rallies. We had 52,000 people each one. And we ended up, he won. And I thought that he could have been more gracious, but that's up to him. 
In comments to the Wall Street Journal yesterday, Trump added, quote, if I did run, I will tell you things about him that won't be very flattering. I know more about him than anybody other than perhaps his wife, who is really running his campaign. Oof. Okay, so before we get into the Trump of it all, yeah. and he kind of sucks the energy out of this, this conversation or redirects the conversation to where there is, frankly, quite a lot of energy because Trump knows how to entertain, if nothing else. Um, what do you think happened in, in Florida? Is it that the something about the, um, the base in Florida yielded a more decisive victory for Republicans? Is it the fact that Latino voters maybe care more about inflation than some of these other issues? Do they just run good campaigns in the state? Whatever it is, you have to credit it. It's, it's worked. Ron DeSantis uh, was very successful. Republicans had the, the be, their best aspect of their night. It was not actually a very good night overall. But in Florida, it was a good night. The red wave was, just, I guess, just a hurricane that made landfall <laughs> oh, in Florida no. and then petered out before it got anywhere else, to use a really kind of offensive metaphor. Um, I, I wonder, um, I don't know if you raised this or someone raised this. Uh, it might have been you. Uh, it, uh, how much we're seeing, if we're seeing any migration, you know, mm -hmm. people very fed up with lockdowns mm -hmm. or crime or whatever, or critical race or whatever it was, leaving places like New York, Michigan, et cetera, heading to Texas and Florida. Maybe the Republican base is going to have the problem that I think the Democratic base has to mm -hmm. some extent, that they're disproportionately concentrated in a couple cities. Republicans are going to be disproportionately concentrated in Florida, which is just really becoming a red state. So that could be uh, uh, a factor. But n no question that Ron DeSantis is a star. Uh, um, it, it is a Republican star beloved by the, ba the base and conservative media and clearly has enough um, appeal to, uh, to swing voters or independents or whatever you want to call him to make him a really compelling force. So great night for him. Uh, my, he won Miami-Dade County. Mm -hmm. um, he helped uh, win some, uh, some other down-ballot races. So, so really, really good for DeSantis. And, uh, and I think if there was any doubt in his mind that 20... 24 is going to be his year and he should go for it. I, this should remove all doubt. Yeah, I, I think it's also worth noting this is a little bit of an indictment of the Democrat strategy here. They ran a former Republican uh, in an effort to try to out Republican Republicans in a red state. It did not work out for Christ. Uh, someone noted that he has now lost, ran and lost as a Republican, an independent and a Democrat. Mm -hmm. And Val Demings was one of these top cop style candidates yeah. a la Kamala Harris, except that she didn't ever even pretend to be a progressive uh, prosecutor leaned in on the kind of uh, I I am uh, tougher on crime the Republicans shtick that Joe Biden has been doing since the summer of 2020. Well, I just say since the 1994 crime bill, and it didn't seem to yield results. So I'm curious whether Democrats will make different decisions about what might turn out voters in a state where they already have a real Republican and maybe don't need a Republican light. Yeah, could be. Uh, clearly, it didn't do them any favors. I'm not sure any other Democrat could have. Maybe they could have fared better. I don't know, but you're, you're right to say that strategy didn't well, work. Well, it's interesting. We were Charlie talking... Crist is not a good candidate. Right. It's just right. Well, we were talking a little bit a while, a while ago about how abortion outperformed Democrats in a lot of these states, and yeah. I still remember yeah. how The pro-choice position. The pro-choice yeah. position. Right. And how a, a $15 minimum wage outperformed Democrats and Republicans in the state of Florida in 2020. And, and, and DeSantis, a savvy political operator, doesn't, hasn't run on banning abortion, has, I, I think, has kept his conversation to, well, maybe a cutoff in the in the 14 or 15 weeks uh, period which like that is a policy I think you can get away with mm -hmm. you can't you clearly can't get away with the ban abortion it just turns off yeah. too many people in the middle um, that uh, that Republicans are going to need to win 
Um, all right, now we should we should let's turn talk, to turn let's to talk Trump. about it. Um, look, we are heading for an epic clash uh, because Trump has given every indication that he's going to announce perhaps soon. Um, I, I think this. This would, uh, for a rational political actor, this would t suck the wind out of their sails a little bit because um, his his the, the the candidates that he helped get the nomination, your Dr. Oz's, um, other Doug Mastriano's, uh, people of that nature, uh, did not do well. Herschel Walker, mm -hmm. um, it's, it's it's L after L after L. Mm -hmm. uh, well, we don't know the, the outcome out. of Georgia, but but Kemp, easy win. Mm -hmm. Herschel Walker in in this this fight for his life. So uh, so it's not a good showing for Trump, but uh, but the, we've known this over and over again, and there's been no way to make Trump exit. Republicans' leadership just keeps hoping he'll just gracefully exit. Well, and in Won't Trump's, do it. In Won't Trump's do defense, it. he also picked DeSantis, yeah. <laughs> as we saw in the leading clip. Yeah. He also chose DeSantis. I mean, what do you I, make of yes. this I argument? Mean, I don't know. It's, it's kind of... So, the idea that, like, DeSantis could not have... Like, DeSantis went from nothing to everyone, like, in, in moments. It's a little... I think that's a little... Well, well, look, I do think there's something to the idea that DeSantis has benefited from not being forced to kind of define himself on the public stage, in part because he did come up as a Trump candidate. Yeah. And although, as we've learned from the Pennsylvania race, debates clearly don't matter, I think some people were surprised how um, less effective he came off in the debate with Chris, despite Chris not being... Mm -hmm. anybody's kind of Obama-style rhetorical star here. And so it is, I think, an, an outstanding question whether or not DeSantis will be able to stand on his own on the national stage the way that Trump has obviously been able to do. Yeah. And, and I also wonder what you think of this argument people have been making that the, the outcomes here, the red wave being averted, as it were, is in part because Donald Trump reared his head campaigning in states like Pennsylvania in a way that might have reminded folks that Dr. Oz was a Trump candidate and that some Republicans are just over the idea of Trumpism. Independents that were breaking for Republicans last month broke for Democrats this month. Do you buy that rationale for what happened uh, with independent voters to cause the red wave to be more I do. trickle? I mean, frankly, I do. Um, look, there's no question that Trump is still very, very popular within the Republican Party, that he is a base of hardcore support. I don't want to like underestimate his strengths by any stretch of the imagination. He, he commands a, an almost unfathomable, unprecedented amount of loyalty from millions of voters. Mm -hmm. uh, he has a hold over the Republican Party that no former candidate fa failed, un failed to win re-election uh, presidential candidate has ever had mm -hmm. over the party. It it's truly remarkable. And that gives him a lot of power. But it's a, it's a primary power. It's a within the Republican Party power. He is very unpopular outside that out, outside that segment of, of the of the base he's extremely unpopular obviously with Democrats maybe any Republican would be but he's not particularly popular with the independent the slivers of voters we're fighting over in these important battleground states it maybe it's not a lot of people but it's it can be decisive we're seeing how yeah. it can be decisive with people like Fetterman winning by just just a few points Georgia going to a runoff um, uh, different Arizona candidates could have done better the former uh, Doug Ducey is the is the was the current governor of Arizona more moderate, probably you probably wouldn't classify him as moderate, but he's not Trumpy whatsoever, not an election denier, very popular. He had some interest in running. I think he very well could have won. Mm. We don't know. You know it's, who mm. knows? But uh, would have done better than Blake Masters probably. Didn't even want to get in the race because he had such a feud with Trump over, you know, he did. He would refuse to do the election denial mm. thing. That, that, that was the same case with uh, Sununu could have run in New Hampshire, the popular governor there. We've seen that Popular Republican governors who didn't like Kemp, 
who like Yunkin, who have not had to take kind of election craziness positions, mm-hmm. can win, can absolutely win. Yeah. And Trump is punishing them for that. So that's the uh, that's the rub, and it's gonna be uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be fun to see how this develops. I won't hate watching it. <laughs> I uh, I won't either. I'll, I'll, and we'll enjoy discussing it afterward. More rising after this. Stay with us.